0: And as they are leaving, would you kindly turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We're reading in chapter 3. I apologize for the wrong chapter being put into the bulletin. This was my oversight. It is, in fact, chapter 3 and not chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 14 through 21. You will find the letter to the Ephesians following... Acts, and Romans, and Corinthians. Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Now as we read this portion of Paul's letter, uh, together it is the great prayer which he had begun to pray at verse 1 of this chapter, uh, but there followed a long interlude which is characteristic of the richness of the Apostle Paul's mind and thinking, and then at the end of the chapter, he returns to the prayer which he had begun to pray on the very first verse. It is one of the richest prayers, I believe, in the whole of the New Testament and very instructive for us. For this reason, he writes, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in earth in heaven and on earth, derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through, through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep Forever and ever. Amen. This is the Lord's word to us. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now, many of us on these Sunday mornings have been studying the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in the adult. Sunday school class that precedes uh, this service here in the sanctuary. And you will have been discovering together something of the richness and the depth of this portion and epistle of God's word. An epistle that begins, you remember, in the very eternities of God in chapter one, with God's calling and election of his people in divine grace and the ushering of them into the experience of their salvation in chapter 2, as the apostle reminds us that God's people once lived according to the course of this world and under the powers of evil and were, as others, under the judgment of God himself. And out of that fearful condition, we have been saved by grace alone and through faith alone. And as the apostle Paul began the third chapter as we have it in our Bibles now of this great epistle, he was reflecting upon the wonder of God's dealings with us, both Jewish believers and Gentile believers being brought into the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole prospect of what God has done for his people from eternity past flowing on to eternity, still to come, fills the apostle with a desire to pray. And so he says, I bow my knees before the Father, who is the Father of God's people. And there follows a supplication that is seldom equaled in the whole of the New Testament scriptures for its richness and its intensity and its depth. And so I suggest to you this morning, from the heart of this great apostle, there comes a remarkable prayer, and it is a prayer for the good of God's people, and it is a prayer for the glory of God's name. And it's remarkable because it comes from the heart of a prisoner. You will recall at this time that the apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome, from which he wrote, not only this letter, but the letter to the Philippians and to Philemon as well. And with the loss of his own freedom and being chained day and night, as we know, to a Roman soldier, we might well have expected this man to indulge in some kind of self-pity, as he wrote, to his friends in Ephesus. But instead, his mind and his heart in this prayer reach out to the Ephesian Christians. And he longs there, from the Italian peninsula, to be able to cross the Adriatic to them, and cross the Aegean Sea that separated them from him, and to be with them again. And he thinks of these Christians in Ephesus, among whom he had labored for three years, and he prays for them, rather than giving way to self-pity, and self-condolence. And so from the heart of this apostle who is a prisoner come these wonderful prayers for the good of God's people and the glory of God's person. Now as we look at this prayer this Sunday morning and probably for two successive Sunday mornings for it is so rich and full I want you to notice, first of all this morning, that there are three, there are four rather great things for which the apostle urgently prays. His desire is for a glorious church. And in this prayer, you notice that the church becomes a glorious church when there are four great marks that it bears, four outstanding characteristics that distinguish it. It is a church in which the power of God's Spirit is present. It is a church, secondly, in which the presence of Christ is abounding. It is a church, thirdly, in which there is a growing perception of the love of Christ in all its quadratic dimensions. And it is, fourth and lastly, a church which is moving steadily, toward perfection of life. And I want you this morning to look at these four great divisions of the Apostles' Prayer as we begin to explore it together. Do you want, beloved, to be a glorious fellowship here in Westminster? Do I want to be a Christian whose life in the eyes of God is glorious in Christ? then it is, I suggest to you, for these things that we should be looking for. They are at the very heart of the great apostle's prayer. This is the very heartbeat of all that the apostle longs and desires for his distant friends in Ephesus. Well, first of all, he says, I want you to know the power of the Spirit of God. And you see this so clearly in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, that is, the Father's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now consider this request with me, if you will. If you knew something of the city of Ephesus to which this letter was sent to the church, within that great city, you would realize that the Christians there needed this prayer of the Apostle Paul because of the great temptations that surrounded them, the circumstances in which they were living day by day. Because the city of Ephesus, you see, was one of the great cities of the ancient world, along with Rome and Alexander and, Alexandria in Egypt, it was the third greatest city of the Roman world of that time. And it was a a thoroughly pagan and worldly city. This was the environment in which these Christians were growing up and were ministering in the name of Christ. A city that was given over entirely to secular pursuits, as so many of our cities today are still given over. A city with an idolatrous bent of mind. It was famed for the number and complexity of the idolatrous temples that you could see everywhere in that great metropolis. It was a city given over to crass commercialism of every kind. The money motive was the great moving force in the majority of men's lives. A city of paganism and ritualism and of orgiastic frenzies and it was famed because one of its well-known religions dealt with the occult and black magic and you read when the apostle came there in Acts chapter 19. And that great work of God's spirit was abroad in the city. And men and women in their hundred were being converted to Christ. At one point, says Luke in Acts 19. Many of those with the fear of God resting now in their souls brought their books of the occult and black magic and burned them publicly in one of the city squares and, says Luke, the value of those books was 50,000 drachmas. And illicit literature of every kind circulated in the city. In fact, it has been said of it But the Romans viewed it as the source of many of their own troubles in Rome. The river Orontes, they said, flows into the Tiber. The river of the city of Ephesus is flowing into our own river, bringing all the filth that belongs there to us. You name the abominations and Ephesus has them. And into this Christian community, a church has been formed. And remember, it's without a long tradition in the things of God and without a long standing in the scriptures. It's grown like a flower out of the Ephesian mud, springing up beautiful and delicate and tender and fragrant before God. And it needed, above all else, beloved, the strength of the Holy Spirit to survive through its infancy into its adolescence and into its maturity because of the great temptations and circumstances that surrounded the church. My heart's prayer to God, says the Apostle, for you is that you might be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. But the second reason, no doubt, why he prayed this for them is that they had great responsibilities to fulfill as well in Ephesus. You see, they'd been converted not only to Christ, but to an altogether different lifestyle. And their children had suddenly gained new responsibilities in the Christian fellowship to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be obedient to their parents, as some of you were hearing in the Sunday school class this morning. And wives were learning new standards of submission to their husbands, and husbands new standards of love for their wives, as Christ loved the church, so you, said the apostle, are to love your wives. And these were heavy responsibilities to discharge when they had learned otherwise. So that as well as the strong temptations that surrounded them there, there were heavy responsibilities as well. And no wonder Paul prayed that they might know the power of the Spirit, that they might be strengthened in the inner man. And my dear friends this morning, is that not prayer, that prayer not as applicable to you and I today as it was when it came from the apostle Paul those long centuries ago? In the midst of our 20th century, what do we see but a society crooked and perverse in all its ways, polluted morally as well as ecologically? And we see a nation that is concerned about the one thing, but not about the other. Abounding in temptation. Wherever you turn. On the television screen, on the advertisement hoardings, in the newspapers, in the glossy covered magazines. Temptation alluring you to depart from the Lord. And we, like the Ephesian Christians, are therefore living a life that is laden with responsibility to God. And beloved, this morning we need to pray with and for one another that we might be strengthened in the inner man by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. That we might be made strong at the very core of our personality and being to live another lifestyle. And Paul prays that they might know, therefore, this dynamic that comes from God, being energized for the doing of his will. He prays for the power of the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice with me, secondly, that he also prays for the presence of Christ. In verse 17, at the beginning of the verse, so that, he says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now I wonder if you've thought what that means, this second description of the church glorious. What does it mean when the apostle prays that the presence of Christ may be known to us by faith? Well, I want to remind you this morning that there is a threefold way in which Christ's presence is known according to the scriptures. It was known, first of all, when he was present in the world, wasn't it? When he came by incarnation and by the wondrous birth of the Virgin Mary, when he lived out those wonderfully human yet divine days in Galilee and in Judea, and in Jerusalem. And the tragedy was, of course, in those days that so many who knew his presence physically chose to exclude him from their lives. As we read in John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But then there is a second way in which we may know the presence of Christ. For as he came once, so he will come again, at that great day when all of human history will be wound up and every eye will see him and he will come to deal with all the problems of the world and set this world that is tottering on its foundations right again and his presence in that day will be manifested and known to the whole world. And you must know in the New Testament some of the words that are described Uh, used to describe his coming. But it is his parousia, his being with his people again. It is his epiphany, his manifestation to the whole world. It is his apocalypsis, his revealing of himself to the world and to his church as he comes suddenly with great power and glory to take his people to himself. And that is the second way in which His presence may be known. But there is a third way, you see. His presence may be known to us spiritually and powerfully even now. And this is the theme of so much of the Apostle's writings as he speaks of Christians being in Christ. One of the most familiar expressions of the Apostle Paul, as you must know. And what he means simply is this that we may know the presence of Christ and should know that presence as Christians as a regular, daily, hourly, momentary experience. My dear friends, do you realize that every time the scripture is read, privately as you read it in your home with bowed head and reverent heart, publicly as it's read from this podium and pulpit, every time the word of God is preached to you, every time, Your heart is lifted up in spirit-inspired prayer. What is happening every time the spirit takes the things of God and reveals them to your waiting heart? What is it but the Lord Jesus drawing near in his presence to you? What is it but the approach of the Savior to your expectant spirit? As he says to you, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens to me, I will come in. And my dear friend, you see, what the apostle is doing here is simply this. He is praying that we might have more abundantly the presence of Christ whom we already have in some measure from the moment that we turn to him. You see, it is possible in the Christian life to have Christ present, but not prominent or preeminent. Every Christian has Christ present without any question from the moment of his regeneration. But what the apostle is praying here, but Christ who is present may become prominent. And may become preeminent by the power of his spirit in the life of every one of us. And oh my friend what a prayer we should make of this. That when he comes to us in his sovereign and unmerited grace. When he knocks at the door of the believer's heart. And says let me come in in all my fullness we will show to him the openness of faith and we will come to know more and more and still more of the presence of Jesus in our lives. I was reading some time ago of that godly Indian Christian S- Sadhu Sundar Singh whom you may recall was born into an Indian Sikh family and after his conversion to Christ became one of the early itinerant Christian sadhus And he was once asked by an agnostic professor of comparative religion in a Hindu college what he had found in Christianity but he'd not found in his own religion. And he replied simply and quietly, I have Christ, he said. Yes, I know, said the professor a little impatiently, but what particular principle or doctrine have you found in Christianity that you didn't have as a Sikh? The particular thing that I have found, said Sadhu Sundar Singh, is Christ. And my dear friend this morning, you and I need so much to discover again the richness of Christ's presence in our lives. Said Luther in the days of the Reformation, we preach always him. This may seem, he said, a limited and monotonous subject, likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at an end of it. In him, affirmed John Calvin, is the whole stuff of our salvation. I offered them Christ, said John Wesley in the days of that great quickening of God's spirit. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find, wrote his brother John Wesley in one of his hymns. Jesus Christ, said Charles Simeon on his deathbed, is my all and in all. He prays for the presence of Christ. Now thirdly, I want you to notice in this great prayer of the apostle that he also prays for the perception of love in verses 17 at the end through the beginning of verse 19. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may go on to know what is the love of God the length and breadth and height and depth of that love. Now there is a sense in which the apostle here is praying something that is impossible. He's asking something that can never be fulfilled, to know the unknowable, if you like. And many times the apostle in his writing sets out to describe the indescribable things of God and You probably remember some of those incidents this morning. But in this particular passage, I want you to see that he is praying that we may be rooted and established in the love of God that has quadratic dimensions. It has breadth and length and height and depth. And if there's anything that we need, thirdly, it's surely this, to be a glorious church. We need to see the strength of the apostles' metaphor here. It's both horticultural and it's also architectural, if you like. You are rooted in the love of God in Christ. You are established or founded. And there is the architectural metaphor in this love of Christ. In other words, we are built upon the rock of God's unchangeable love. I think it's Spurgeon in preaching upon the subject of faith on one occasion describes what happens when we come to Christ and believe in him. He says our faith sends out a rootlet into the tiny crack that opens in the rock. And down goes that little rootlet. It holds fast and binds itself to the earth with a hundred anchorages. And we've often seen trees, he says, on the mountainside that are rooted apparently on detached masses of rock where there seems to be nothing to support them, yet they're solid there. And he says that's what we need to do with Christ and with the love of Christ. Putting down a feeler into the love of Christ. And then sending out another little rootlet into it. And then another and another. And the roots of our nature becoming embedded in the solid rock of the love of God that is displayed in Christ to us. Built. On the rock of God's unchangeable love. My dear friend, do you feel that way this morning? Let me ask you, do you feel that way? Can you say with Top Lady, the hymn writer. My name from the palm of his hands. Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains. In marks of indelible grace. He loved me before the first of time. He'll love me to the very end of time and beyond it. And so you see what Paul is doing is praying that the Ephesian Christians might have some perception of this love of God that has come to them in Christ. And he speaks of the quadratic dimensions of it. Now look at them, each one of them with me, if you will. There is the breadth of God's love to us in Christ. And I think if you ever wanted an illustration of that breadth scripturally, you would turn to Matthew 11 from verse 25 and following, where Jesus issued, you remember, that great invitation, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is the dimension of breadth in the love of God or when he said I am come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance or when he said again I have not come to call those who are well because they do not need the physician but those who are sick Or, if you like, there is a demonstration of the breadth of the love of God as you look to the outspread arms of the cross of Calvary and you see an invitation in those outspread arms on Calvary to take in everyone who will be drawn to faith in Christ from the world. He calls all who are aware of their need to him. And then there is the length of the love of God. You think of it beginning in eternity past, flowing and dipping into time, and then going on to eternity that is still ahead of us. And you remember the insight that the Apostle Paul shares with us in Romans 8, when he says that before the foundation of the world, God foreknew those who would be his. And then as that purpose of God's love dips down into time, he says he called those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to faith in him. And he goes on to sanctify them. And then the process goes out of time and back into eternity. And he says he will glorify them. And there is the amazing length of the love of God to his own people. Oh, my dear friend, do you grasp it this morning? From eternity to eternity is the love of God that the apostle prays we might begin to have some perception of. And then thirdly, there is the depth of it. As someone has described it, surely the depth of God's love is God's great dive. As in Philippians 2, the apostle describes the Lord Jesus forsaking the riches of heaven, what was rightly his, and making himself of no reputation, and becoming a man in our nature, and humbling himself, and going down even to death, the death of a criminal and malefactor, being accursed of God's. And then rising gloriously to the right hand of God again. There is the depth of the love of God for us. Christ coming from heaven to earth. And tasting hell for his people. That they might be delivered from eternal judgment. And oh he says I want you to know the height of God's love as well. And that surely speaks to us of Christ ascending to heaven and to glory again as our pioneer and trailblazer, the one who has gone before us. And he who has done that says to the Father, I pray that those whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am. I have gone, he says, to prepare a place of many mansions For you, that you will be forever inseparable from me. There is the height of God's love to us in Christ. Now you see in summary, the apostle is praying for some awareness of this, some perception of God's love, to realize its quadratic dimensions. And oh, my prayer, beloved, is that each of us in this fellowship might realize something of the richness of that love more and more. Now, fourthly, as I draw to a conclusion, there is the perfection of life, you notice, in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. I remember years ago hearing of a missionary who was returning to Canada, who had been in Italy, the Reverend Dr. Mario de Gangi, one of the fine reformed ministers of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. And he told how on his return trip he had passed through the city of Milan in Italy and he had gone to see the central landmark in that city, the great cathedral of Milan. And he told us how What was most striking to him was not the building itself but the ground beneath it for well below the level of the street was still the ruins of an ancient church and baptistry where in the fourth century a young pagan philosopher and orator had come to faith in Christ through the prayers of his godly mother Monica and the powerful preaching of the bishop of Milan, Ambrose, and the inward working of the Holy Spirit in this young man's conscience, he became transformed. It was indeed Saint Augustine, whose ideas influenced Luther and Calvin at the time of the Reformation, and among whose famous sayings is this one, Thou hast made us Lord for thyself, and our hearts are restless, Till they rest in thee. Now you may take that saying of Saint Augustine and you may turn it around and it's still true. When you say that inside every person who has ever lived, there is an emptiness. There is, as someone has said, a God-shaped hollow. And it cannot be fulfilled by anything in this world. Not by all our frantic activities. Not by our frenetic endeavors to get right with God. Not by following a life of hedonistic pleasure and self-seeking. Not by the pursuit of anything in this world. Can it be filled? Because the perfection of life, you see, does not consist in the abundance of things that we possess or experiences that we may have. But it consists in the fullness that God brings into our lives when we first come to know him and when we go on in the Christian way to know him better. And my dear friend, you see, the fulfillment and conclusion of this prayer is inevitable, isn't it? That by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives, we might know the presence of Christ more richly in our lives and the quadratic dimensions of his love to us. And so we may be filled with all the fullness of God himself. Because when you and I know the Holy Spirit empowering us from within and Christ within us as no stranger or merely fleeting guest but as the permanent resident within our lives and we know the love of Christ pursuing us in all its breadth and length and height and depth we are beginning to come in to the perfection of life itself. And so in conclusion, let me say this to you. Here is the apostle's vision of a glorious church. And these four ways are ways of its realization. My dear friend, what do you pray for in your Christian life? Some extraordinary revelation? that will make you a better Christian, a more effective servant, some great gift that God will give you that will make you extraordinary and outstanding in the fellowship. These are not the things that we should be praying for at all. We should be praying to God our Father who sees us in all our weakness and will make us strong by the Spirit's indwelling power who sees us in our loneliness and needs and would bestow upon us a still richer presence than ever of his beloved Son, who sees us in a world of alienation and indifference and hostility, and who would give us a new assurance of his love in its length and breadth and height and depth, who sees us in our emptiness and need and is willing to fill us with an abundance of good things. Oh, how great is the grace of this wonderful God, how his heart reaches out to us, that he is willing to do these things for us and how our hearts should reach outward, reach outward and upward in earnest intercession as we bow the knee before the father of the Christian family that he might do these great and wonderful things for us. This is how you and I are strengthened. This is how the church becomes glorious. Oh, that we would long and pray for the fruits of this great apostolic prayer to abound in all our lives. Today, let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, truly exhort our hearts and encourage our hearts by the vision of the church glorious that may be ours. And bring us, our Father, into that position in the Christian life where we long for these things more than we long for anything else, that that ancient and Spirit-inspired apostolic prayer may bear its fruits in the lives of each one of us to the glory of God, our Heavenly Father, and the good of His people. For His name's sake, amen.